Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Broad shifts in U.S. policy have long affected population health in our country and beyond. As we face an era of alternative facts, distrust in research, and isolationism, we are experiencing a whole new set of questions. How do we create policies that keep us safe when we can't even agree on the facts? I'm Maria Sakalis, and today we are joined by Professor Rob Gatter. Rob is the director of SLU's Center for Health Law Studies, and the center this year is hosting its 30th annual Health Law Symposium, which is taking place on Friday, April 6th. The symposium's titled Public Health Law in, in the Era of Alternative Facts, Isolationism, and the 1%. And this will be a full-day symposium in Scott Hall discussing how broad shifts in Uf, U.S. policy affect population health. So thanks for joining us, Rob. I'm happy to be here. So first... We hear this phrase population health, and that's different than public health. So what does that mean, and how does that affect the life of an average citizen in the U.S.? So um, public health and population health as phrases overlap with each other considerably, uh, but population health is meant to distinguish the actual health status of a population, whether it's a city, a county, a state, the country, uh, from the the public health public health as a uh, as a mechanism. So when you think about public health, the public and public health oftentimes refers to the public sector that is doing work, mm-hmm. like monitoring for diseases or making recommendations with respect to vaccines or operating uh, free clinics. Um, and this really population health really focuses on what is, what is the health status of a population. Mm-hmm. And that that's our concern. Ultimately, the goal is to create a healthy population. Without a healthy population, you can't have a productive, self-governing population. So it's just meant to differentiate that part of it from the, 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 the governmental actions that we take to achieve population health. Okay. Okay. So what policies would you say have changed recently or in recent years that affect population health? There have been a number. So um, I think probably the biggest thing would be the Affordable Care Act. You know, mm-hmm. we don't really think about um, a piece of legislation that really had to do with health insurance mm-hmm. as somehow being about population health. But it's also not hard to imagine that if you have um, a large section of your population, if your population is, let's say, the metropolitan area of St. Louis um, that is uninsured, those individuals don't have access to health care the way you and I do. Um, an insured person, when they're feeling ill, knows that they can go see, go to the doctor. They don't wait and worry about a medical bill right. and let it fester to the point where they worry that now it might be an emergency, and then they go to the emergency room, and they then have a huge bill. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, we just go to the doctor. But if you have, say, 30% of your uh, city's population without health insurance, that's a large segment of the population that is unlikely, that is more likely to be ill. And when they're more likely to be ill, they're more likely to pass illness to others. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to be less productive because they have to take more time off from work, either for themselves or, say, their sick kids who are missing school. Um, they um, then are less able to uh, use money to secure other aspects of their health, including 
the roof over their head, the food that they mm -hmm. buy, that sort of thing. If they are sick, go to the ER and get faced with a large bill. So we find them declaring bankruptcy. Uh, when they declare bankruptcy, that pushes that expense onto the rest of us, not just mm -hmm. through health insurance, but just through the prices of everyday things we might buy. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, the fact that the Affordable Care Act mandated that everybody had health insurance and created an incentive for states to expand their Medicaid programs to cover the poor um, substantially reduced the number of people without health insurance, and that's a huge boost in population health. Um, oftentimes it's criticized for costing more, and it does. There's more spent. When you have more people who are able to go get health uh, healthcare when they need it, it does cost more. Right. But, in, but in the long run, right, it costs less if it results in a more productive society that's less likely to declare bankruptcy and is better able to nourish and house themselves and their children. So mm -hmm. that's a huge one. That's just the health insurance aspect of it. Sure. But... Uh, I don't know if many people are aware that that there are lot there's lots of there are lots of provisions in the Affordable Care Act that also directly affected population health. Um, some were as straightforward as just funding public health clinics. Mm -hmm. uh, when it first passed in March of 2010, so eight years ago, um, some of the first who were standing up and applauding were those who operate um, public health clinics. And public health clinics really are just Clinics where you can go, you can get basic health care relatively free of charge, uh, and they're generally funded through Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Well, this boosted the amount of money to the point where we could open up 25 30% more clinics, and that just makes a huge difference. If you can vaccinate kids at the right age, it's just, it just makes a huge difference in their ability to remain healthy, get to school, get an education. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one of the more interesting ways, and this will be the last example, is that... Uh, the Affordable Care Act created a, a, a new way of paying hospitals, especially hospitals that joined together in large groups with physician clinics and laboratories and maybe even with their own health plan, uh, that if they're large enough to provide every single medical need of a population of at least 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries over the course of a year, they could take on this um, essentially some financial risk that if they were able to do that at below the target that Medicare would otherwise have spent for that population, there's a savings. And that savings would be shared uh, by the government with this um, um, integrated health care delivery system that, that's called an accountable care organization. Um, but you can't get that money from the government unless you meet certain quality markers. Mm -hmm. And those quality markers are all based on the population of 5,000 or more Medicare beneficiaries. So that's interesting to do that, not to measure individual health. We've done that before, where we've said, well, if a patient comes to the ER who's a Medicare beneficiary and receives treatment and you release them, but they come back within 24 or 48 hours, that means you probably didn't do your job very well. And so that affects that, your reimbursement for that particular right. patient. Now, this is different. This is saying, overall, you saved money. Let's look at the health markers of the population as a whole, not any one individual inside that, that Medicare population, but the population as a whole. And if those population health markers are met, then you get the money. That's an interesting incentive to, for, the, for a healthcare delivery system to think about a whole patient population. Mm -hmm. And as uh, integrated delivery systems gets ever larger, 
uh, they have more incentives then to pay attention to the, the health of the community they serve in addition to the individual patients one by one by one. Um, so those are some examples. Um, gosh, the um, I suppose some of the the others would be the, the biggest other would be the the um, the amendment that uh, prohibited um, the National Institutes of Health from uh, using money to fund research that tracks gun violence. Population health is first and foremost. It looks at what what are the primary factors that in, result in injury or illness or death in a population. And if it's traffic accidents, then population health advocates will say, we got to pay attention to, to, to cars and traffic and highways. And if it's domestic violence, then that's where we look. If it's an infectious disease, and we're looking at that, right? As gun violence continues to rise, it's important to understand, you know, what, what, how, how prevalent is it? What are the factors that lead to gun violence? Um, where are we seeing it most often? Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes is studied through places like St. Louis University and other large universities, and it's funded in part by the government through the National Institutes of Health. Uh, but there's a federal law that was driven primarily by the National Rifle Association to uh, prohibit the um, the federal government from using any of its money to fund that sort of research. That means we have much less information about gun violence, which makes it very difficult to know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, another change in law that's important to me, I teach public health law here at SLU, and um, one of the areas that I do research in is uh, domestic and international policy with respect to quarantine um, in the face of infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, and the federal government just recently proposed and promulgated new regulations about quarantining uh, because of interstate travel and also international travel, whether it's foreigners seeking to enter uh, the United States or it's Americans who uh, leave the U.S. on international travel and then are coming back home. Um, and those new rules are, um, a sig- they reflect significant change in policy uh, that I'm hoping would better account for the risk of infectious diseases from other countries coming to the United States. So in the past few weeks, we've heard in the news about uh, an outbreak of Lhasa fever in Nigeria, which correct me if I'm wrong, but is kind of the latest example of um, a big outbreak of an infectious disease that the broader world community is starting to pick up on. So, um, you know, we read about Doctors Without Borders deploying aid workers to Nigeria. Presumably some of these aid workers are Americans or will be Americans. So can you touch on how these new policies that you're talking about um, will affect those aid workers, um, both aid workers from the U.S. as well as other workers coming into the U.S.? Sure. Um, well, loss of fever is similar. You're right. Loss of fever is, there's a new outbreak, and it's not so much the size of the outbreak um, in comparison to other diseases that we see. It's the size of the outbreak in comparison to what had been normally experienced with that disease. Mm-hmm. Typically, it's pretty contained. Uh, but it has um, spread significantly in, in Nigeria to the point where Nigerian public health officials were asking for help 
So there's an international public health system that operates uh, primarily through the World Health Organization, but mm -hmm. also through some of these international medical aid organizations like Doctors Without Borders, which is probably the most famous one. And then they come in and they help. Um, and part of it is just to provide treatment who, to people who are sick, and part of it is to also do some public health analysis to figure out what's the cause, how is it spreading, why is sure. it bigger, and what do we do about it. Um, a, an organization like Doctors Without Borders is made up largely of volunteers. And the volunteers are nurses and physicians who come from a number of different countries, primarily from uh, developed nations. Uh, so the U.S., Canada, um, Western European countries uh, make up most of the sources for volunteers for mm -hmm. them. So I have no doubt that there is that there are U.S. aid workers anytime there's a World Health or I'm sorry, anytime there's a Doctors Without Borders deployment. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are. Uh, back in what would that have been 2014, 2015, I believe that there were uh, more than 20 people from Missouri who were part of trips to uh, Liberia, Nigeria, other West African nations in order to deal with the, the then Ebola crisis. And so I'm sure that there's, there's um, medical aid workers from the U.S. who are on this deployment. So what happens is they go, maybe they're there for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, and then they make a trip back home. Uh, e loss of fever is like Ebola, that it is, uh, it's not easily spread, but one of the, the kinds of people who are more likely to um, be infected with the disease from another person are those who treat them medically. Mm -hmm. So the aid workers are going to be gowned in all of the kinds of protective equipment that you saw on the cover of Time magazine during the Ebola yes. crisis. Mm -hmm. um, but um, they'll be closely monitored as well to make sure that they're not becoming sick. It's also similar to Ebola in the sense that you can't get loss of fever from someone else unless the person's in the throes of the illness. And uh, that means if they have a little bit of a fever that's signaling the disease is, is that they're infected and that they're going to become really sick in the next 24 or 48 hours, that's not when they're infectious to other people. Sure. They're, other people are at risk once they really start getting sick. And that's when they should be isolated. So an aid worker who's gone to Nigeria to help uh, is at some risk that they become infected. Uh, when this happened with Ebola, we had a doctor and a nurse who came back from helping in Liberia. One of the doctors lived in New York City, and there was a big scare when it was discovered five, six days after he got back that he was sick with Ebola. Um, he had been monitoring himself according to the rules that the public health officials had given him. But in the, those three, four days before he, he noticed he was getting a fever, he had been out in New York City riding the subway, mm -hmm. going bowling, things mm -hmm. like that. And that really made a lot of people scared. Well, does that mean I can't ride, I can't go to bowling alleys, I can't go ride the subway because I'll get Ebola? And the answer was no, there was no way. But it did result in several states adopting laws that were much more restrictive. And not a week later, a nurse came back from the same kind of deployment. Her name is Casey Hickox, and she was quarantined. She didn't have any symptoms. She didn't pose any risk to anybody. But was it possible that over the next week or two that, that she would develop a fever as well? Yep, it was possible. And she was quarantined for that purpose. The idea of quarantine is to separate someone from the rest of the community when they have been exposed to an infectious disease and when they might be infectious already or we would have no warning that they would become infectious. And that's why we need to keep them away mm -hmm. for the period of time it would take to learn whether or not they're sick. Um, Ebola is different. 
since the fever ends up being a warning signal, you don't really have to lock someone up. You just have to closely monitor them. You don't have to keep them away from everybody else. But nonetheless, New Jersey quarantined her. Maine tried to quarantine her. And um, when that happens, the risk that we take is that the volunteers who we would have gotten to already, you know, they're already taking on a pretty significant burden. They're already telling right. their their bosses, hey, listen, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. They're already leaving their fam. I'm sorry, for six to eight weeks. They're already leaving their families for that period of time. Um, and they're already taking the risk that they might get sick. To then learn that when you come back, you've got to spend two more weeks quarantined um, is really ends up being uh, adding yet another barrier to getting mm-hmm. volunteers to go. And that's the kind of thing we ought to all care, care about. Sure. And um, it seems like it should be basic enough level of established facts these are the warning signs. These are the symptoms. This is when you're contagious. Right. That we can make that um, a, an established procedure versus the, you know all the these different states having all these different kind of unscientifically verified policies. And I've had these conversations with a lot of people here in St. Louis, and they'll say, "Well, yeah, but there is one procedure. You know, you quarantine someone when they come back, and you just don't know. And it's better to be safe than sorry." Mm-hmm. And there's, there is a logic to that in the very moment when it's happening. But this is where um, you need to fine-tune things a bit. The procedure that's used in the regulations needs to ask about the particular fast facts of the way each disease is transmitted. You can't treat a, new, a novel flu that's dangerous in the same way that you might treat Ebola or loss of fever that are more hemorrhagic mm-hmm. fevers. They just act differently. Um, one of them has a warning sign bef- and gives you 24 or 48 hours notice before the person who's sick becomes infectious to others. The other one doesn't. Mm-hmm. So where there is no warning sign, yes, it makes sense to quarantine them. And then it's a burden we all have to endure, uh, or the, at least the individual aid workers have to. But with And so it really should be disease by disease based upon the facts. And unfortunately, that's not what the new regulations require. Um, that's exactly what got us in trouble with with Ebola, and I'm fearful that we're going to see that repeated when we have folks coming back with loss of fever, uh, folks coming back from treating others with loss of fever, and that's going to mean we have fewer volunteers going in the first place. Um, And, you know, (laughs) um, I think some people say, well, that's the burden they take on. I'm, I'm thrilled that they go, good for them, but that's the burden they take on. That's what it means to be a nurse or a doctor. You have to be self-sacrificing when you come back as well to protect your home community. Um, that's true when the risk is real. Sure. But when we're just scared of something that's really not a risk, then that is not a good reason. That's not something we should ask anybody to take on. Plus, we're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot. The reason people are scared is they don't want to get Ebola or loss of fever from someone who returns to St. Louis from having helped abroad, right? Well, if we unnecessarily burden their lives when they come back, they're not going to volunteer the next right. time and the next time. And I, and I liken this to imagining um, the fires in California. If you don't fully support the firefighters in your home community when they head off to fight the forest fire that might be three counties away, um, then they might not go to fight that forest fire. And that forest fire keeps moving way, its way closer and closer to you, right? And suddenly it's at your doorstep. And uh, that's the reason that we need to be sending, we need to be encouraging 
We need to be sure. treating them as heroes and not burdening them any more than absolutely necessary. Uh, when they go and fight a fire that's far away, that seems far away from us, but could easily jump into our borders. And all, have, all people have to do is just remember that Ebola entered the U.S. through a traveler. Um, and that we can't really in this global community be sure that it won't travel that way. Um, so it's better for us to be engaged and to support our volunteers who go off and risk uh, their lives and burden their families and that we don't burden them any more than we have to when they come back. So that's sure. really where the rubber hits the road on that one. So for our listeners who are interested in joining us at SLU Law for the Health Law Symposium mm -hmm. coming up in April, um, can you talk about, besides infectious diseases, which mm -hmm. you just explained beautifully, can you talk about some of the other topics that will be addressed in this symposium, what people can learn more about? Sure. Um, so we have, um, I think we have seven uh, speakers flying in from other locations from across the country, as well as um, some local experts uh, coming in from our own College of Public Health. And the topics will, are fairly broad. Uh, all of them relate to population health. So we'll have uh, some panelists talking about some administrative and legal mechanisms that the federal that federal agencies and the president can use, such as executive orders that could significantly affect the democratic process of how we pursue population health. Uh, but then there'll be some substantive panels. One will focus on addictions with speakers talking about uh, potential changes to the law in uh, nicotine content in cigarettes, as well as uh, whether or not the opioid crisis is causing us to lose our attention um, with respect to binge drinking and advertising, alcohol advertising aimed at children. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get into access issues, including uh, Medicaid and uh, the way states are operating their Medicaid programs today using federal money, but requiring individuals to work. That's a substantial change in the way uh, Medicaid has operated. And it stands to put our most vulnerable individuals, particularly uh, disabled individuals at risk for not having health insurance. Um, and then uh, we'll also have um, a panel that looks at um, something known as health in all policies, which is really the, the goal of proper population health policy, recognizing that whether we're talking about food stamps or housing or health insurance or school operations, that there's an aspect of health and safety in all of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking at trends as to uh, individuals who are more vulnerable, either because of poverty or uh, because of immigration status or uh, because of educational level, uh, are left out. Um, and so it'll be really interesting. It's a terrific group of people. And actually, it is in part getting, uh, getting a group of folks together who I worked with um, in 2014 for a year as part of a Robert Wood Johnson grant, where Robert Wood Johnson was really interested in getting um, uh, health law, I'm sorry, pop, um, population health law taught differently, taught more inclusively, taught more interprofessionally. And um, seven of the guests who are coming were part of a group of 10 of us who worked together uh, for a year on developing these new methods of teaching. 
And so uh, we're bringing them back together, and it really is um, an all-star cast. And then, of course, just the Health Law Symposium, just a big event for us each, each year. These turn into papers in our journal, and it, we're upstairs in that gorgeous courtroom, and it really ends up being a fan, uh, fantastic day. So I, I hope people come out and see it. Um, it. It ought to be an interesting day, and if you haven't seen the inside of this great building, you're missing something. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rob. Again, that symposium is going to be on Friday, April 6th. Go to law.slu.edu for more information on that. And that's all for today. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law. <laughs>